Thank you. Thank you for coming out. Um, <clears throat> I want to um, give me 30 minutes. Okay, give me 30 minutes. Nobody falling asleep. If the guy's falling asleep next to you, just give him a little nudge. Uh, after eating, we all kind of get a little relaxed and, you know, just kind of want to lead back. But I, I need 30 minutes of your time because whenever I get an opportunity to speak to men, God has put this on my heart. And I, and I, and I just want to impart this to you. Um, you know, over 300 times in the scriptures, it tells us to remember. Uh, in fact, what's interesting, Jesus never told us to remember his birthday. Now, I love Christmas, don't get me wrong. But he never said, remember my birthday, but he did say, remember my death. And said, In fact, he said, do it often. There's something about being reminded of something. And um, in fact, it's been said that if those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so I want to read to you a letter that Peter wrote. It's his last letter. He was in Rome, and he's writing to the churches. And I want you to use your sanctified imagination a little bit because, remember, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have iPads. Uh, what they would do is they would write out these letters, and then they would send them to the church, and then the elder would get up and read the letter to the church. Nobody could follow along. They had to just listen. And then they would make copies and pass it around. So I'm going to read you the first 15 verses of Peter's second letter in the New Living Translation, because when I get to the 13th, 14th verse, uh, there's a purpose for me doing this. So, Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, New Living, though. <clears throat> this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, notice that he put the fact that he was a slave or a servant, and then he mentioned apostles. And gentlemen, you know what? We always need to be servant leaders. We need to be servants that lead, but leaders that serve. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. May God give you more and more grace. Now, he's writing this to them, but I want us to receive this. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. I'm going to read that again. For by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. In other words, I don't have an excuse. I live in New York. I've been in New York for now 69 years. I know nothing else but New York. Uh, coming to Chicago is like the suburbs. Um, but I can't use the fact that I live in such a sinful city to say I can't live a godly life because scripture tells me here, God has given us, God has given me everything we need to live a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him, meaning Jesus, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. Someone took out the time to figure out there's approximately 7,000 promises in the scriptures. 7,000. Goes on to say, these are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Verse 5, in view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. In other words, be diligent. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, moral excellence with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance, patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection 
and brotherly affection with love for everyone. I would suggest, you know, when you're not sure what to pray about, open up to 2 Peter 1, and this is verses 5 to 7, and make this a prayer. I mean, it's in the Bible, so it's a good prayer. In other words, I would pray every day, God, supplement my faith with a generous position of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and guidance with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. That's a good prayer to pray daily. Remember, the Bible says we're supposed to pray, uh, give us this day our daily bread. So we just want to make sure that we stay before the Lord to, to so that you may grow more like this, be more productive and useful, you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, now he's, written, he's writing to Christians, but those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall, never fall away then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That grand entrance is when Jesus talked about in Matthew 25, when we all want to hear good and faithful servant, right? Well done. Okay, verse 12, and here's, here's what I, I want you to pick up on. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things. That's the first time Peter's telling the church to remember. I will always remind you of these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. And it's only right that I should remind you that's twice as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. I will work hard to make sure you always remember that three times, these things that I'm gone. This, this letter only has three chapters. And in the third chapter, the first verse, he writes again, Peter, I have written both letters, one and two, as reminders. Think about that. Four times in this short letter, he keeps telling the saints, I want to remind you. In fact, Paul writes to Timothy in his last letter in 2 Timothy 2.14, and he tells Timothy to keep reminding the people, which is interesting. Most commentators believe at that time, Timothy was uh, pastoring a church in Ephesus. And if you remember, 30 years later, God had to tell John to write to the church at Ephesus and say, you left your first love. So obviously they didn't remember. Remembering is so important for us to remember the things God has taught us. And so Peter and John and Paul all seem to realize it's more important that we are reminded of things than to learn new things. I'm, I'm all for learning new things, but most of the time we just need to remember the basics. And in that passage that I just read to you, those 15 verses, it talked about growth. It talked about making an effort. It talked about being intentional. Growth, you have to be intentional. The only thing that's automatic is decay. Growth is intentional. He's talking about growing. He's talking about being productive. He's talking about being useful. He's talking about being developing. He talks about making sure we, get, we understand that grand entrance into the eternal kingdom. What I'm saying is Peter... And John and Paul always wanted to remind the church, keep the end in mind. Guys, I want you to keep the end in mind. Keep the end in mind. Um, October 2017, uh, that's when Harvey Weinstein got uh, exposed with him taking advantage of women. That's where the hashtag MeToo started. And in one year, in one year, over 200 gifted men, mostly men, fallen. Men that never thought they would fall. Men that were educated, men that were intelligent, men that were, were, were gifted. 
I mean, we're talking about coaches, we're talking about celebrity chefs, we're talking about CEOs, artistic geniuses, journalists, elected officials, scholars, conductors, ballet teachers, celebrities, athletes, doctors, educators, coaches. None of these guys thought they were going to fall. In fact, even, even today now, we're talking a year and nine months later, still names are coming up about men that have been caught doing things they should not have done and losing their careers, losing their reputation, some of them losing their family, losing their wives, having to face their children in a very embarrassing way. And it's just not in the secular world. It's happening in the church. And just recently, um, the Village Church down in Texas, a youth pastor was charged with uh, molesting an 11-year-old girl at a, at a Christian summer camp. Unfortunately, there was a pastor right here from the Good Shepherd Church just two weeks ago in the Times, was teaching two young girls, two sisters, brought them to his house, and he violated them. And, and there's plenty of unfortunate, tragic stories within the church of men who are used by God, maybe gone to Bible school, dedicated their lives, water baptized, speaking in tongues, yet didn't keep the end in mind. And they end up bringing such tragedy to their church, to their lives, to their, to their future. They, they, they lost sight of God's calling. We all have a calling, gentlemen. We all have a, maybe everybody not be a pastor, but we all have a calling. We're all called to do something. You brothers in Teen Challenge, you're going to go back to your homes one day where you, where you live. You have a calling. You have a calling. You have a calling. And if we don't keep our calling in mind, then we're going to treat it loosely and think we can get away with things that we can't. And my opinion, I'm not saying I'm completely right, but in my opinion, the reason why they lose this, this calling, they lose sight of their calling, is a result of greed or pride or lust. Greed or pride or lust. Got hungry for money, got hungry for notoriety, fame, thought they were above being caught, thought they would never get caught. I, we go to the prisons all the time. One of them especially is Angola in Louisiana. And uh, everyone in there, there's 66 guys on death row. There's 6,000 inmates right now. That was the most notorious prison back in the day, maybe about uh, 15 years ago. Um, and everybody there, no one thought they would get caught. Nobody thinks they're going to get caught. All these guys that got busted, all these journalists and actors and, and wealthy people, they never thought they were going to get caught. But they had some kind of pride. Or they struggled with, obviously, lust. And they destroyed their reputations. They discredited their influence. They damaged their family. If they were in ministry, they damaged their ministry. And a lifetime of sorrow. Um, they started out well, but starting out well is not good enough. You got to finish well. Jesus started out well. He started out in Bethlehem, right? But he finished well on the cross. And, and that's what we have to understand. We need to finish well. So I want to talk to you about finishing well. I want to talk to you about going all the way, completing our assignment. We all have an assignment. Mine happens to be pastoring a church in Brooklyn, in Queens. That's my assignment. I want to finish well. I can't, I've been saved now 44 years. I can't take it for granted that I've been walking with Jesus for 44 years. In fact, that's, that would be one of the first things that would probably start to cause me to lose my foundation. When I start thinking, well, I've been doing this for 44 years, four decades, I know something. I don't know nothing. I need the Holy Spirit to keep training me and teaching me, as all of us. Rabbi Zechariah said this, beginning well is a momentary thing. Finishing well is a lifelong thing. No one reads a book to get to the middle. You want to get to the end. You want to know the conclusion. You want to know what's happened. Ecclesiastes Solomon, who started out well. I mean, talk about having a, a, a golden spoon handed to you. He started out really well, and he meant God. I mean, listen, when you read about... <clears throat> 
and dedicating the temple, the presence of God came so mad, so heavy that the priest couldn't even minister. Why? People would come all over to hear his wisdom. They says no man was wiser than him before or after. But he didn't finish well. Yet he wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, better is the end of things than the beginning. Because it's really the end of things really says where you're at. And uh, in our lives, in our ministry, and we're all ministers, maybe not ordained, but we're all ministers, uh, we have to make sure that, you know, the value to our lives or our testimony is finishing well. Our faithfulness to the Lord is a lifetime of faithfulness, not just a temporary thing. You know, 2 Corinthians 3.6 says that we are all ministers. And 2 Corinthians, that same letter in the fifth chapter, says that we are ambassadors. We are to represent Jesus Christ, but when we don't finish well, Anything good that we've done just seems to be tainted. This is according to Dallas Theological Seminary. It says that out of the leaders in the Bible, two-thirds of them, 70% of them did not finish well. Think about that. Now, it doesn't say that they they went to hell. It just says they didn't finish well. There was a a blemish in their life. You know, Solomon is in in chapter 11, that uh, book of uh, the whole hope, the, what they call it, the whole mark of faith in chapter 11. But he didn't finish well. Started out well. Angel prophesied his birth. He was a Nazarene, got power, you know, an anointing from God, but he didn't finish well. 70% of the leaders in the Bible did not finish well. The Apostle Paul writes this from a dirty prison, mind you, in Rome. 2 Timothy 4 7. He says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. Gentlemen, it's a fight. It's a fight. Because the devil wants to take you out. The devil wants to ruin your testimony. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to ruin your family. He wants to ruin anything you've touched. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that we don't wrestle flesh and blood. But there are spiritual powers that are looking to take us out. He says, I fought the good fight. He said, I finished the course. In other words, he knew God gave him an assignment and he finished it. This is the last letter he ever wrote, most commentators believe. I've kept the faith. Why? The picture is like a sentry guarding his post. I kept it because someone wanted to steal it. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we have to understand we all have a calling. We all have a purpose for God. And uh, we need to understand how important it is to always keep our eyes on Jesus. When Paul was talking to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, he says, you know how I live. Not you know how I preached. He didn't say, you know how I wrote all those letters? You know how when I put a handkerchief on people, they were healed? He didn't say anything. He said, you know how I live, how we live in our homes, how we live when nobody's around, how we live with our wives, for you guys that are married, how we live with our children, for you got you, got you fathers. Paul said, you know how I live. That's what's so important, so that we live a life that is worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. And listen, we all go through stuff, guys. We all go through stuff. We all have issues. We all have hurdles to run over. We all have challenges. I mean, but nobody could be Paul. Listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 11. He writes this, talking about issues. He said, I worked harder than most. I've been flogged. I faced death multiple times. This is verses 23 to 29. You can look at it when you get home. Five times I've received the 40 lashes minus once. Five times. What did his back look like? Five times he received four. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned with rocks. Three times shipwrecked. Spent a night and a day in the sea. Was always on the move. Harassed by the Jews. In danger of false brethren. Gone without sleep. Been hungry and thirsty. Gone without food. Been cold and naked. Dealing with the churches. 
And this is all before he got arrested in Acts 21. This is even before, if you remember in Acts 27, he spent 14 days in the open sea in a hurricane. This is all before that. So he's gone through some stuff. And yet he stood faithful. He kept, he kept the faith. He, he hung in there. He finished his course. And I believe it's because, you know what, he had a love for the gospel. He had a love for Jesus Christ. And that's what kept him focused. Once we lose sight of that, any of us can just fall to the wayside. He did not, he, he wanted to make sure that he would not take finishing mo for granted. No matter how long you've been saved, you can never take your walk with the Lord for granted. And listen, he struggled with the flesh like all of us do. In fact, he, wrote, he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. He said, I'm the worst or the chief of sinners. In that famous passage in Romans 7, he says, there are things I want to do, I don't do. How many can testify to that? And things I don't want to do, I end up doing. So he's as human as we all are. But again, he kept the end in mind. He kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. He knew that he was going to stand one day before him, and he didn't want to ever have anything that was going to forfeit that. And he went through struggles with Jews and with churches and, and, and the Romans. And the gospel of Jesus Christ compelled him to make sure he kept the end in mind. He longed to see him. And, and you know, sometimes we think, well, some people have an advantage because uh, maybe they're close to Pastor Paniagua or maybe they're close to one of you guys that are uh, older in the Lord. And you can think, well, maybe they had like a, you know, that was like a, a perk for them. Paul had a crew around him, right? He had Silas, he had Timothy, he had Aristarchus. He had a number of guys around him. He had a man named Demas around him also. So Demas was there when Paul preached. He was there when Paul prayed. He was there when Paul wrote some of the letters. Demas is mentioned in Colossians. He's mentioned in Philemon. But unfortunately, when Paul writes his uh, last letter to, to 2 Timothy, to, to Timothy, or the second letter, he writes that um, uh, 2 Timothy 4.10, talking about Demas, because he loved the world, he deserted me. Because he loved the world. What was the world? Well, at the time, that was Rome. And maybe all the glitter, maybe all the, all the ladies, maybe, you know, all the big buildings and all the fancy chariots and, and handsome horses, maybe that all got his attention. And he was with Paul, but he didn't finish well, which I can't take for granted that I'm just around great men of God. I have to understand I want to be a great man of God. I want all of you to be a great man of God. Billy Graham said this. He said, the devil seems to get 75% of God's best servants through sexual temptation. 75% of God's best servants fall through sexual temptation. Billy Graham said that. So allow me to remind you, being that being reminded is so important. <clears throat> it's obviously we need some spiritual disciplines. We, we need to make sure that we make room to pray. Jesus made room to pray. You got, if you're not intentional, it's not going to happen, guys. We all got busy lives. We all got crazy schedules. We all got people pulling on us, those text messages that come in, those phone calls. But you got to make room to spend time with God. There's, there has to be a place where you are. Some of you, we were talking with some of the brothers, they're out in the country. You got blessed because you can walk out in the country and make room with God. I, I, I'm in the city. I'm in Queens. There's no country. There's maybe a tree here and there. But you know what? My, the best place in my house is my living room because every morning I'll make room to spend time with God. Sometimes it might only be five minutes. Sometimes it might be 50, depending on what's happening that day. But God can do very much with the little you give him. Remember, they had five loaves, two fishes. He fed thousands of people. You give him what you have and watch what he'll do with it. You've got to be intentional about making room and spending time with God. Jesus got a way to spend time with the Father. 
If Jesus needed, how much more me? How much more us? You have to be intentional about understanding God's word. As I said earlier, give us this day our daily bread. You got to be intentional about that. And sometimes you can read more than other days. And the goal is not to finish the chapter. The goal is to just hear from the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. You got to be intentional about that. You got to be intentional about being worshipped. Look, we don't always have the brother and musicians playing behind us, but you can spend time worshiping the Lord. And what's amazing, God just says, make a joyful noise. I only make noise. I don't make a sound. It's a noise. I can't sing, but I can make a joyful noise to the Lord. And I have to be intentional about taking out some time to worship God. Even before I start asking for things. And we all need things, but you just need to come to the, you know, you enter his gates with thanksgiving. You come into his courts with praise. That's how you position yourself to receive from God. Spending that personal communion time with the Lord is so important. In fact, I'll speak to any of you that are in ministry. Sometimes we get so involved with ministry or the work of the Lord, we forget about the Lord of the work. Sometimes we get so involved with the work of the Lord that we forget the Lord of the work. In the Song of Solomon, the first chapter, the sixth verse, uh, it, it reads that, <clears throat> they made me keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I did not keep. They made me keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I did not keep. We're all responsibility. We all have responsibilities in the vineyard, in God's kingdom. And you might be doing a great job holding a Bible study or organizing or administrating, whatever. But if you don't keep your vineyard, eventually, eventually, it's going to show. There'll be no fruit. And that's the last thing we want. And, and we have to make sure that, you know what? I can't think like, as I said earlier, and I'm not boasting in this. Maybe some of you are saved longer than I am. But I can't boast in the fact that I'm saved 44 years. It says in the scriptures, it says, if you think you're standing firm or strong, be careful you don't fall. And Paul wrote that to a gifted church, the church at Corinth. And he says, don't, don't take for granted just because you got a bunch of gifts and you're prospering and you're doing well that you're, you're fine. And let me remind you about something else because regardless of what season of life you're in, <clears throat> You want to finish well. And it, it, it requires to have an attitude of a servant. It requires to have an attitude of a disciple that you're always willing to learn. It requires having a humble attitude that you always realize that you haven't ever arrived. And uh, multiple times a day, gentlemen, regardless of, um, regardless of your understanding or teaching when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, regardless of that, there might be different opinions here. We still need the Holy Spirit. And you need, I need daily to say, God, Fill me afresh and new with the Holy Spirit. We need that, those fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit so that we can do what God has called us to do. D.L. Moody, who is obviously famous here from Chicago, he, he said living the Christian life without the Holy Spirit is like trying to breathe without lungs. It's impossible. It's impossible. And when you think about some of the decisions that we have to make, uh, uh, research tells us that the brain, and this is hard for me to believe, but the brain can make 35,000 decisions a day. 35,000 decisions a day. If our brain can make that many decisions, I have to tell you, I need the Holy Spirit to help me make the right decisions. When it comes to my wife, when it comes to my children, in this stage of my life, when it comes to my grandchildren, when it comes to my church, I can't just do what, what, what feels right or seems right. I got to do what is right. And so I need the Holy Spirit to come and teach me and guide me and lead me. And I can never think that I've been doing this this long that I can just, you know, do what seems right or just guess it. Um, whatever happens, Paul writes this from, again, a prison to the church of Philippi. In the first chapter is, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And stuff happens. But whatever happens, 
We need to conduct ourselves. And in order for me to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, then you know what? I need the Holy Spirit to fill me and, and so that I can complete the task that God has given me. Right now, it's to pastor the churches in Brooklyn and Queens. We have two campuses. That's what I'm supposed to do right now. But I need the Holy Spirit in order to do that. And uh, I, I want to I, I hear like you and all of us that well done, good and faithful servant. That well done, good and faithful. You can be good and not faithful. Or you can be faithful and not good. <laughs> but you got to be both so that you can serve the Lord. <laughs> another another um, instruction from the Bible about finishing well. Remember, this was written to Christians. is in Hebrew 12.1, where it says this. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's the Christians. Let us throw off everything that hinders. Hinders what? Hinders our walk with the Lord. It's not a sin, it's just things that hinder you. But, and the sin that's so easily entangled. So there are sins that trip us up. Oh, we all have them. His, listen to these other translations. New Living Translation, written to Christians. Let us, onus on me, let us strip off every weight. Weights are not sins. But let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. New Century Version, same passage. We should, again, the onus on us, we should remove from our lives anything that would get in the way and the sin that so easily holds us back. You would think Paul wouldn't have to write that to Christians. But we all have things that slow us down when it comes to the work of the Lord. We all have things that we trip over. I, I think the sin is the obvious. I mean, I, we know when we sin. The Holy Spirit just makes us, we know we shouldn't have said that. We know we shouldn't have acted that way. We shouldn't have looked at the screen. We shouldn't have, we shouldn't have done so. We know that. Those things are, are, are pretty easy to, 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 to analyze or discern. But what's the weights? What's the weights that slow us down? They're not sins. They're things that maybe seem quite innocent in and of themselves, but uh, they keep you from running the way you should run. Uh, it might be sports. I'm a sports enthusiast. That's great. I think that's healthy. But it might keep you from reading your Bible. It might keep you from spending time with God. Maybe, you know, you got Netflix and, man, you're binging. You're watching all these incredible movies, but they can keep you from spending time with God. Um, it could be a whole host of things that just social media. It's great, but, man, it just seems like it just sucks you in sometimes, and you can't believe how much time you spent on that device. And um, those things are weights. They uh, Personal testimony. It might even be another brother. Christian brother. When Rhea and I got saved, it was <clears throat> 1975. We were living together. We were both divorcees. We ended up moving in together. Um, we were living reckless with drugs and all of that. And we had a bunch of people that were just like us, druggies, crazy people in Brooklyn, New York. Um, they got saved. Some hippie, thank God for the hippie, some hippie came and preached the gospel to them. And 30 of them got saved, 30 of our friends. And uh, they prayed for me and Maria, who were in Mexico at the time, again, doing drugs. And uh, they prayed for us on, on, uh, uh, in September. And the night that they prayed for us, my wife felt like we needed to go to church, which was so crazy for us. But we did. And we came back and we see all these 30 people that we used to get high with now, cursing, saying the F-bomb and all that. Now they're all talking about praise the Lord. And, and it was, we were only gone 10 days. This thing, like, happened instantly. And so we were really impressed, and they took us to church, and uh, we got saved. And uh, these friends, of course, became our Christian family. 
but over the course of time, by the way, Marie and I did get married immediately. We want to make sure you understood that part of it. Um, some of them just weren't helping us grow in God. They were saved, but I don't know, they were holding us back. I, I'm not trying to judge them, but I did have to, my wife and I had to eventually evaluate this and say, you know what, they're not really helping us. Instead of wanting to go to church, they wanted to do something else or they wanted to watch a show that really wasn't the best or they're still messing with some of the music from the clubs that we really don't want to listen to anymore because that just reminded us of the old days. And so these dear friends, especially two of them, we had to just start shying away from. And then we had to have that difficult conversation, which wasn't easy. Hey, guys, we just we can't hang with you anymore. Oh, are you more holier? No, we're not. But just this is just not working. How can two walk together if they don't agree? And I don't agree with you wanting to do this and wanting to do that. And you know, they had this rationale. We're going to go back to the club. That way we can preach the gospel. Okay, well, I can't do that. I can't go back to the club. That's too many memories for me. I, my wife doesn't want to do that either. So you might want to do it, but I, I, I'm not. And so we had to separate ourselves from Christian friends. Sometimes the weight, I want to say this carefully, guys, but sometimes the weight might be a Christian brother. Because, oh, he's always talking about sports, or he's always talking about the money, or he's always talking about the job or the house or the car. And, you, and you know, and you're not a fanatic, but you want to talk about the things of God. That's what's going to build you up. And, and sometimes it means you've got to step away from, from a relationship, and that relationship is probably the weight that's holding you back, and you got you to take it off. You just got to strip it. The onus is on us. We just got to strip it away, those, those situations that we know are just not, not good for us. Um, they say that the hardest part of a marathon is midpoint. It's when uh, you, uh, somewhere around the 15-mile mark, your brain tells you, stop running. <laughs> your body's saying, stop running. You can't do this anymore. And you got to push past the pain. Marathon runners, I'm not a marathon runner, but they tell me you got to push past the pain so that you can finish the race. Well, um, not too long ago, Compassion International, which is a great organization to helping out children, uh, came to our church and they did this, they wanted to do this drive for the church to uh, sponsor children in different countries. And I'm all for it. We sponsored a couple of children, my wife and I. And, uh, but the, in order to kind of raise money, they decided to have a 5K race in Flushing Meadow Park in Queens. 5K is what, about three miles? What's that? 3.2. Yeah, okay. Well, it could have been 30.2 for me um, because the guy, the spokesman for Compassion International says, well, look, if you can get your senior pastor to run the 5K, we'll match whatever money the church raised. So now the church is saying, whoa, do it, Durso, do it, do it, do it. Yeah, and I'm seeing like they were throwing me out under the bus. And I, I'm not a runner, you know, I can't do this, you know. No, you got to look at all the money it's going to bring in. So I said, okay, I was stupid. I said, okay. And I, and I, I tried to get into shape a little bit. It was like a couple of weeks out, which you can't do that if you guys run. Um, but I did it. And um, I, they, I started out with everybody. And I was dying, you know, 3.2. I think I was at 1.2 and I was ready to quit. But I wouldn't because my wife told me, she came with me. She said, I'm going to be waiting for you at the finish line. So I had all these pictures in my mind of me running across the finish line, you know, like chariots of fire, you know, my hair blowing in the wind and everything. And I kept pushing myself because my wife, 
was at the finish line. Well, gentlemen, Jesus is at the finish line waiting for every single one of you, and you have to finish the race. And sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes it might be painful. But you, you, you think about the fact that Jesus is waiting at the finish line for us. we got to push past whatever inconveniences we have, whatever struggles we might face, whatever friends we might have to stop hanging with so that we can finish the race and see that glorious face of the Lord and receive our crown of life. And um, regardless of the course God's put you on, whatever it might be, you know, people always say the grass looks green on the other side, but you know what, you got to mow the grass, the, last, the grass no matter where you live. And uh, so you got to make sure that the course or the task or the assignment God has given you, you want to finish. Someone once said this, to finish well is not a last-minute decision. It starts now. To finish well is not a last-minute decision. It starts now. Okay, you guys have been faithful giving me the time I asked for. I'm going to ask my brother to get behind the keys, and I'm going to close with one last story. Uh, and this happened in 1968. It was the Summer Olympics in Mexico. And uh, runners from all around, this was a true marathon, the full 26 miles. Uh, runners from all around uh, the world came to run. And there's this one runner, uh, number 36, John Aquari from Tanzania, was signed up for this race. And um, they were doing fine. The gun went off. The way they did it then was the first lap was around the, uh, the track in the arena. And then they went out through Mexico City and they had a course all caught out. And they had these Jeeps riding around with a big red cross on it that in case you fell or if you couldn't take any more, they had oxygen, they had bandages, they were there to pick you up. But if you got in the Jeep, you were disqualified. You couldn't finish the race. Well, somewhere midpoint around the 15-mile mark, there was an accident. They were jockeying for positions, and a couple of the runners clashed and fell to the ground. One of those runners was John Aquari. He hit his head, he hit his shoulder, and he really tore up his knee. Someone gave him a handkerchief to wrap up his knee because it was bleeding. The truck pulls up, says, John, number 36, you want to get in? And he says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to keep going. So he did, but he wasn't running like he was running earlier. He was, earlier he was running great, but now he's running like this. Kind of just limping along, trying to, you know, go past the pain in his, in his shoulder, in his head, in his knee. And um, he kept running. Somewhere around the 20-mile mark, the Jeep comes around again and says, John, Number 36, you want to you get in? You're really hurting. He's, no, 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 I'm going to finish. So the Jeep let him go. Well, race is over. All the runners now are in the arena. Firmly are there. The media is there interviewing the runners, getting their testimonies, where are they from, and all of that. And all of a sudden, it's even gotten a little dark now. Most of the audience has gone home. All of a sudden, John Aquari, number 36 from Tanzania, comes through the gate. And uh, he goes to that finish lap, the victory lap around the track. And someone saw him and stood up and started to clap. And then someone saw the guy clapping and realized he was clapping for John, who was running around this last lap. And he stood up and started to clap. And all of a sudden, whoever was there, the few dozen people that were left, all stood up and started to clap and started to shout John on. And he makes this, this, this uh, full lap, and he gets past the finish line, and he just kind of stands on his, leans on his legs, and he's breathing heavy. People go running over. The news media goes running over, sticks a microphone in his face and says, John, why did you keep running? I mean, look, your, your knee's torn up, your head's torn up, your shoulder's torn up. 
you know, what was the big deal? You should have gotten the Jeep and, 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 and let them drive you back. And John Aquari from Tanzania, number 36, says, my country did not send me 10,000 miles to start a race. My country sent me 10,000 miles to finish a race. Gentlemen, God did not save you just to start a race. God saved you so that you would finish the race and finish it with glory. One last, one last verse. Yeah. It's always too soon to quit. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, Acts 20. Stand with me, gentlemen, please. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I finish the race and complete the task. The task that the Lord God has given me. It's not how important it is when you started the race. It's how important it is when you finish the race. I asked my brother to lead us in this song. Then Pastor Paniago is going to pray for us. Would you lead us, brother? Life is not my own. To you I belong. I give myself, I give myself to you. Life is not my own. To you I belong. I give myself, I give myself to you. Life is not. yourself away to him. Reaffirm your relationship with Jesus this morning. Hallelujah. We give ourselves away afresh in you today, God. We reaffirm, oh God, our relationship with you this morning, God. this morning 
that through your precious blood we have been redeemed. We're, we're your very own people, God. We're the ones that you have saved, oh God, not because we warranted, not because we deserved it or did anything special, but simply because you loved us. You chose us to run this race, to represent you in this life, Lord. And I thank you for your grace that has enabled us to begin the race. And I thank you that today we have been reminded that it's your grace and your strength, your spirit that enables us to continue to run the race. And it's not enough to have begun it. God, we got to finish the race. And today we choose, we make a fresh decision to say that by your grace, we are going to continue to run this race. We know that you are waiting for us at the finish line, Lord. We know that, God, you are encouraging us today to continue. No matter what difficulties we're facing, no matter what issues we're dealing with, you want us to continue to run this race. Because you're waiting for us at the end to say, well done good and faithful servant. So I pray a freshen in you for all of us today. Father, pour out your spirit upon us a freshen in you today. Pour out your spirit upon every man in this house, oh God, that we will have the grace and the strength to run this race and to run it well for Jesus Christ. And we promise to give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. And all God's men said, amen. And amen. Come on, put your hands together and bless the Lord.